You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Alice Top and Richard House uh, are dancers with the Australian Ballet and are here to talk about the company's work Symphony in C, in which you're dancing, but more than that, you're, you've also choreographed work yeah. in this as well. Welcome mm-hmm. to you both. Thank you. Thank you. So how does one go from, I don't know, being a member of the, the Corps de Ballet to choreographing work on the main stage? I know. I think it just comes from like a desire to create new movement and to more play with the movement that we've been given as well with ballet. So being interested in seeing what you can create as well, which leads you to want to develop more beyond being a dancer. Is there a, does that suggest then that there's not a frustration but an awareness that ballet with its formal structures has certain limitations which as choreographers and artists you want to kind of push past? Um, I guess for us, being in the core, we're used to dancing a lot of productions created by other people. So we're representing other people's ideas. So this is an opportunity for us to um, experiment and explore our own creative sides. And yeah, I think it's more about that for me. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. With developing choreography and all that kind of stuff from being a dancer, I've never been one of those ones that practiced all the turns and all the jumps and all that after class I was more just like okay well I was never great at that so let's find what I'm better at and I feel being more fluid with my movement and creating that kind of newer movement is a better fit for me as well so I think that's what kind of led me to develop more of that. And the opportunity then to present these new works that you've choreographed side by side with a major uh, ballet work as well. Is, was that nerve-wracking, just thinking people are going to be comparing our work to his? <gasps> oh, yes. It's terrifying, <laughs> actually. Equal parts thrilling and terrifying, yeah. I think. It's so hard because they're your ideas. I feel so much more vulnerable than when I'm dancing yeah. because you have more control when you're out there, but when it's your piece and you're sitting out the front and you're oh. watching it, you have to just yeah. abandon that and give it over to them, and I find that really yeah, difficult. Yeah, you just putting your soul out into stage and you're just watching thousands of people just watch it and judge it. So it's yeah. it's really daunting. But So yeah. very different to the way you would feel. I mean, because presumably you feel judged when you're dancing as well. You're aware that people are scrutinising your movement. But as you say, they're, they're scrutinising your physical response to somebody else's choreography. They're not kind of critiquing your own original mm. art. I mean, mostly unless you fall over on your backside. Yeah. And that's, <laughs> that's not part of the chore. Yeah, that's not right. But... Yeah, it, you can kind of think that it's somebody else's ideas, yeah? Yeah. Talk to us, let's take a step back for the moment before we talk about uh, Symphony in C in more detail uh, and just tell us, uh, Alice and Richard, how you both got involved with ballet to begin with. Uh, do you want to go first? Oh, you can go. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, mine actually all started when I was about 10 years old dancing around the lounge room to Spice Girls and all that kind of stuff. And my best friend in my court um, when I was growing up, she always had dance lessons on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So, of course, I'd always go to her house, like, asking her, Mum, oh, can we go, come out into the court and play and all that kind of stuff? And she was like, oh, no, not tonight. She's got dancing lessons. So to kind of get back at her so she knows how it feels, I was like, well, I'm going to start dance lessons <laughs> and start that. And, yeah, I've kind of continued and she stopped and, yeah, just... 
Because you Loved were it. doing jazz and tap originally, weren't yeah, you, before you transitioned to ballet? Yeah. yeah, I didn't start ballet until I was about 12. Why the transition from kind of from jazz and tap, for example? Um, well, I was originally, I originally started ballet because I was told I needed that, like, technique foundations to get into the Victorian College of the Arts secondary school. And it wasn't until later on when I was about 16, 17, when I auditioned for the Australian Ballet School that I really, I don't know, developed an interest for it and kind of matured and understood, I don't know, the feeling that you can get from ballet as well. Because before that, I think I was just more commercial music and all that kind of stuff that I was really loving. But then when you get to learn how you can express yourself and feel certain emotions with what ballet movement can give you, it's kind of, I know, it was really beautiful and really intriguing to me. And Alice, what about yourself? How did you get involved with ballet? Um, Well, I was four and my mum used to do pantomimes and some dancing. So, yeah, she taught my sister and I and a few friends and then we went into horse riding and netball and everything else and my sister got told she'd be the ballet dancer and I'd be the horse rider and we swapped. She's a professional horsewoman and, and here I am. So, yeah. Now, to pick up on something, Richard, that you said you said about as you matured, you got more feeling from ballet. I yeah. wonder if you could both unpack that a little bit for us. What do you get out of ballet as as artists, as dancers, as performers? What is it about ballet as as an art form, which some people, particularly say fans of contemporary dance, might see ballet, ballet as a little bit, not old-fashioned, but as I said, codified earlier. It, it has a certain kind of structure and style that it works beautifully within. So talk to us about what you get from ballet. From dancing and yeah. creating. I mean, for me, it's my therapy. Yeah. I, I can express myself. I've got such creative freedom. And when I can't make sense of the world, I just pour it into that. That's what it is mm. for me. Yeah. I don't know about you. Yeah, no, there's something about the like ballet movement and the ballet technique and all that kind of stuff. Is, as strict as, as it is, it's actually not so strict and it really allows you to really be emotional and put all your life experiences into that movement as well. So when you are up on stage and performing, I know it, you really get to be yourself instead of playing, like I'm talking more about like the contemporary kind of ballet works when you can, when there's no story or character to play, but you can actually be yourself and you don't have to slap on a smile and do this or do that. You can literally just put yourself out there and, I don't know, find yourself as well out on stage. It's really And quite even freeing. in the traditional works, I don't know about you, but you go on such a sense of a journey and even when you're portraying a character, you are you as that character. Yeah. So you can just invest yourself in that and just get lost really. Yeah, yeah. Now, Symphony in C, the the work that is opening tonight at the State Theatre and Arts Centre Melbourne, uh, is uh, a production which the Australian Ballet, I believe, first staged in Sydney last year. Yeah, and correct, so now yeah. it's Melbourne's chance to see it. It's named after, I guess, kind of the foundational work that is part of the program, Symphony in C, uh, by the choreographer uh, George Balanchine. Tell us a little bit about this work. About George Balanchine's Symphony in C? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a huge tutu ballet and it's one of those showstoppers that kind of just shows the most classical ballet that you can do. It's, it's beautiful. There's all the girls on stage, all the core girls. The and majority of the company is oh, up there, really. The stage is filled yeah. with pointers and tutus and it's a real feast for the eyes. It's when the curtain comes up, the audience just goes, Oh, cause it's just like when you think about coming to the ballet, that's what you, always imagine all these tutus, all these classical lines. It's quite striking. It's pure ballet. Yeah. 
lines, everything. It's tiaras and, and tutus and yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's an archetypal work, really. Yeah. 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 It is, yeah. So then you've created original works which are kind of uh, juxtaposed with that or yeah. placed alongside that. Yeah. Did you begin making your works knowing what they would be programmed with so that you could respond to, to Symphony in C, for example, or was there a different creative approach? We got told it was going to be a gala program, so we kind of assumed that it was going to be yeah. diverts and all that kind of stuff. But At the same time, yeah. I don't think that really changes our um, objective. You know, we go to create the works that we want to create and hope that it fits into the program. Yeah. But I think this program, I think our contemporary pieces complement it so it's a bit of a tasting plate, like you said. You yeah. get a really good variety and... Yeah. Um, yeah. And it really shows like the evolution of ballet as well. How we've got the very classical part of deurs like Dona Nacton and Grand Park Classique, where it's old school ballet. It's classical. You can't hide behind anything. It's you've either got like the strength and turns and balance and all that kind of stuff. So you can't hide in that one. And then you evolve again and you go to um, Symphony and C, which is like that next evolution in ballet as well, where it's a little bit more. It's still classical, but it's got that slight flair on it, which is quite beautiful. And then, it, like the evolution again, which is going to Alice and I, and where, where we're trying to take ballet further as well, and really sort of challenge, you know, what you can do with the classical technique, and and you know, morph that and and explore that. And so, there's still the classical elements in yeah. both our pieces, but we're using our foundation and our language, our dance language, and creating our own. You know, yeah, it's literally this season voice. has got everything. Yeah, but like it shows you the whole kind of almost past and present and future of where ballet is, and so it kind of gives the audience, I don't know. Over like a couple of hours, they get to see the whole transition of where ballet's going. So I guess it's, it's probably yeah. great for first timers exactly. as well because rather than sitting through a long three act ballet, um, they get little snippets yeah. and they can you know develop their taste for whatever they like and hopefully come back. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> now let's just talk briefly about your own individual work. So Alice, your piece is Little Atlas. That's correct. Yeah. Um, and so three, it's a, a work for three dancers. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So what were you wanting to create when you made this work? Yeah. Um, well, Little Atlas is loosely based around the notion of memory. And I guess it's about our attempts to recreate or unmake memories um, and also our attachments to memories and the way that we remember them and the way that we remember them making us feel and how that can morph over time and how it can also take us back to a place and... Um, you know, certain people and a time in our lives and how we can find ourselves, you know, longing to be back in that place or, or to have the ability to erase those memories because memories can be both a blessing and a curse. So for me, um, I guess it was about experimenting that with a group of three dancers that had been friends for over 15 years and had, had seen each other grow up and um, they were about to retire. So it was a really special moment that we could all invest, you know, our experiences into that work, yeah. And a driving piano score to it. Yes. Yeah, yeah by Ludovico oh, Arnaudi. Stunning. Um, yeah, I'm so lucky. It's just magic to create on, yeah. And, Richard, your piece is called From Silence and yes. I've been told that uh, it provokes gasps in the audience when the curtain rises uh, and they see yes, the opening image. That skirt. Um, yeah, this 
the costume designs by Kat Chan have really taken on a life of their own um, because the piece starts with I wanted to just zero in on a like it's a girl facing the back and just for the audience to zero in on, I don't know, there's something about a female back when it's dancing that's really quite stunning and I wanted to really zone in on that. So I was talking to my designer, I was like, all right, so how do we like create something where it's just like backless, but then it's not just her standing there facing the back? And she's like, oh, we could try and drape it with a skirt. And I was like, okay, well, as long as it's a skirt that's like never been seen before. And she was like, oh, all right. But uh, <laughs> interesting creative yeah, challenge. Yeah, not a hard thing to do. But uh, yeah, and she basically came up with this design of this beautiful seven meter long, this red tulle beast of a skirt and it's just stunning the way how it lights and all that at the start it's it almost looks like lava so yeah it's quite a beautiful striking opening image yeah i'm looking forward to seeing it tonight when i get along to the opening night of the australian ballet's symphony in c in the state theater at art center melbourne i've been talking with choreographers and company members alice top and richard house thank you both for coming in thank you so much Three, triple, ah. From Roller Coaster Theatre Company, uh, I'm joined by the company's artistic director, Sarah Sutherland, and company member David Baker to talk about their work, Fish, on at the Melba Spiegel Tent in Johnson Street, Collingwood. Welcome to you both. Hello. Thanks, Thank Richard. You. So, um, Sarah, tell us a bit about Roller Coaster Theatre Company. Rollercoaster Theatre Company is a company of actors, trained actors with intellectual disabilities. We're a really small company. We have nine ensemble members and almost all of the ensemble members have been uh, with the company for nearly 10 years. Uh, The company formed, as David will tell you, when they graduated from Ignition Theatre Training, which is really the only uh, training for people with disabilities to train as actors and theatre makers. Uh, And they came out and, you know, like me and like many actors, found that there was no work. Work. And so they did the, the very smart thing of trying to create their own work and that's where, ten years later, where we are today. Yeah, sure. In terms of... uh bringing the, the company together. How many people were involved at the start? Um, and involved in the start, I'd probably say around about um, eight or nine. Um, some of them, you know, um, have been there for, like, since it first started. Um, Yourself included? And myself included, <laughs> yeah. And um, also, um, it was also grateful that um, the parents were also on board as well to help out. And um, it was just, uh, you know, an amazing experience. We've done um, various lots of work from, um, you know, working with Sarah Sutherland and um, to a no, um, and also Katrina Gab and everyone else. Uh, no, being involved in 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 the production of um, of roller coaster productions previously, and it's just been an amazing um, amazing journey. So, and here's to the next um, journey at the Spiegel Tent. So, yeah, yeah. Well, ten years for the company is is uh, a great for any independent company to, to stay around for that yeah. long, and ten years of being a committed actor as well. I dabbled in acting when I was younger, and I didn't have the determination to go to see it through. After the first couple of rejections, I was like, no, no, I'm too too fragile for this. I'm going to go and become a broadcaster and a writer instead. So, what is it about acting? that kind of has kept you focused and committed uh, for the last decade or more? Well, for me personally as an actor and um, for me is actually always it's been that continuous of learning, of continuous of learning new things, new skills and developing also as well uh, to actually extend your horizons and actually work with other people. That's 
probably the best thing of the tool. And you can actually, what you've learned, you can actually put into practice about what you put on stage and actually really showcase. And that's the beauty of um, being an actor. And also as well, um, you know, dancer and everything, you know, it's just a, it's just the fact of how you be versatile and, and really put yourself out there and just give things a shot. Yeah. Yeah. So Fish is the company's latest work. Uh, it's directed by Maud Davey, uh, who will be well known to many smart arts listeners as a as an actor and performer and, and maker. Uh, and tell us a little bit about uh, about the show, kind of Sarah. What what is what's the, the the focus of Fish as a production? Well, Fish we've built it as a fantastical soap opera about fear, uh, and I guess what we're really looking about looking at is this sort of feeling of um, unsettledness in the world at the moment. All of the work that we do at Roller Coaster is is devised. We've done about five shows over our ten years, um, and this is this is no exception. So Maud is this extraordinary theatre maker, and she's come on board. Um, to to make this work and we started with this idea that all we knew was we were going to perform at the Spiegel tent. So when we were thinking about the Spiegel tent we were thinking about um, variety shows and sort of that sort of crazy slightly oddball um, amazing environment that it is and and cabaret and and music and Maud came to the ensemble with this notion only uh, and the ensemble was really excited about making, making a musical. Um, so when we began the devising of the work, we were looking for these sort of thematic threads to weave together and what became really apparent was our collective experience of the world at the moment was one of unsettledness, as I said, but also of sort of a fear, a fear of, of what was happening in the world. Everybody basically was had, a, had feelings of being frightened of, you know, what was happening in Europe and what was happening in America, what was happening in the Middle East and in Australia too, and also feelings of helplessness around that. How does that affect us in our daily lives and, 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 and what can we do to make our lives better? Um, so when we began this sort of song-making process, uh, the words of the ensemble were, were written and, and used in an improvisational process and uh, brought on board... Jane Bailey, a songmaker, um, to put these words to music, and so that has become this sort of look at notions of of power between the little people and the big people, um, and the sort of fantastical ideas that come out of that. So that there's a lot to uh, to be afraid of in the modern world in some ways, and it seems like the mainstream media want to make us afraid because then they'll mm. will buy more newspapers or, or whatever the case may be. What kind of fears did you want to uh, to explore in the piece, David? I think for me personally was uh, just emotional um, emotions for me personally in the piece, um, emotionally as a person. Um, that's something which I wanted to strongly explore, um, which we actually all strongly speak about, um, not only about bits of what's happening in the world but also our own emotions as well that we can kind of fear, you know. Like I know that uh, somebody actually has a fear of birds, you know, and that speaks in the... You know, and um, I actually have a fear of being touched unexpectedly, you know, and there's those kinds of unexpectedness of those things that, you know, that can, can affect us uh, mentally but also outside of that as well. So it's, that's the kind of... Those are the kinds of things that I've, you know, that I fear, you know, that I fear of, yeah. Some people are, are afraid of speaking in public or... Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. what, about, what about singing in public? <laughs> No, singing in public, well, I, I kind of had a bit of a practice um, previously before, but um, for me personally, singing, 
sing in a show in a in a musical that that is self devised for me is a um, massive challenge because we actually wrote the songs you know with the fantastic help of Jane Bailey and also the great support of uh, Maud and um, for me it was actually a uh, amazing challenge to take on that to take on that and um you know, and hats off to all the all of us cast really to take on that challenge and that's you know something else too in the acting world of taking on challenges yeah mm. and this is the first time the company's done a musical it's the first time we've done a musical and i think that's one of the the really great things about um working with the roller coaster ensemble and Maud and i were talking about this yesterday this sort of capacity to just jump in and grab anything and and really put you know the hard yards of work in that it requires to to put something on stage um and in terms of the ensemble and the way that they work and sort of perceive the world around us we were we recognize that you know the ensemble as well are aware as any of us that the world is kind of can be a really frightening place and at the moment is particularly unsettled um, and their ideas are just the same as mine or Maud's or yours. And to bring those out to the fore has been a really, really interesting process. So we, while we're getting, you yeah. know, uh, fear of being touched or fear of thorns or birds, yeah. which is, you know, like all of the small crazy things that happen, is the overarching fears that are coming through of sort of this the world is a place that we can't quite control and that and I guess leading it straight back to the title um that something is fishy fishy is going on that's <laughs> perhaps causing our political leaders to behave in the way we do and that something might be happening and we don't know what it is and we don't also know quite what to do about it. So it's a chance to explore kind of intimate personal fears and those big, larger um, uh, fears of a world out of control. and Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah an unpredictable world, yeah. that's right. That's right, you know, and... Um, not sure what's happening, you know, whether we're going to be here today or, or, um, or still here t- now, you know. It's <laughs> like, just take it on now, yeah, yeah. And how many other people are performing in Fish? Oh, about 12, I think, 12 or 11. Mm. Um, there are, no, there are about, or around about, eight, I think there's about 12 or 8, yeah. So there's about the, that amount. Um, we have nine ensemble members yeah. currently performing in, in this production uh, and we also have two musicians on stage we always work with live musicians so we're working with chris lewis and jane bailey also on stage with us um and a couple of the facilitators also coming in and out great yeah so the production is called fish directed by maud davian presented and created by the members of the roller coaster theater ensemble it's on uh, at the melba spiegel tent just next door to the tote uh, at 35 johnson street collingwood and is running from the 31st of august until the 2nd of october you can find out more details at www.rollercoastertheatre.net.au it's going to be fun i think performing in the spiegel tent that all that venue yeah. seems to bring out the best in everybody it sure does yeah no uh, I've actually have seen a few show a show there um, last year actually called uh, uh, for the love of Pina, which was actually done by Caroline Bowditch, and um, it's a great venue and very intimate, very uh, open, open but also closed. But um, no, but I'm super looking forward to it. It's going to be amazing, really. Well, best of luck for the show, and thank you, thank you both for coming in. Thanks thank you, so much, Richard. Those details again, Rollercoaster Theatre Company's production Fish at the Melba Spiegel Tent, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood, from the 31st of August to the 2nd of September. Uh, more information at rollercoastertheatre.net.au.
Something you will not be bitterly disappointed by is an exhibition called Borderlines, presented by Linden New Arts. And on a domain house in the Melbourne Gardens uh, on Dallas Brooks Drive in South Yarra. It's uh, on now until the 24th of September. Joining us in the studio to tell us a bit more is curator Juliet Hansen. Welcome to Triple R, Juliet. Thank you. Good to be here. So Borderlines is an exhibition of artworks by um, Indigenous artists from the area around the kind of what the tri-state border. So it's South Australia, WA... And the Northern Territory. The Northern Territory, yeah. Mm. So talk to us a little bit about the, the artists and the exhibition. Sure. So about 18 months ago, uh, Lyndon New Art approached the Jumpy Desert Weavers. Um, they were they're quite a, an important Aboriginal arts organisation in, in Central Australia. We approached them to do a show with us with their fantastic grass-weaving sculptures. And... Uh, through talking to them, it turned out that they often worked with two other art centres in the region, uh, Papalankitja artists and Warakurna artists. So naturally, they formed um, a group exhibition. And, uh, yeah, we're delighted to have those, you know, to have been working quite closely with those three art centres to bring it all together. Um, the show itself... Um, is made up of uh, work on canvas, um, paintings on board, also on tin, as well as the wonderful grass sculptures. So it really represents that diversity of art practice that exists in Central Australia. Now, how significant are those remote uh, Aboriginal art centres in terms of uh, kind of fostering and uh, championing the work of contemporary Indigenous art? Yeah, I mean, the, the Jumpy Desert Weavers particularly are a really good example of a, a kind of a, a social enterprise, if you like. Uh, in the late 90s, um, it started out as basket-making workshops with the women from the NPY lands, which is the um, the area of land um, in, the, in Central Australia that falls on that tri-state border. And it, it was a way of bringing the women together to continue their traditional cultural uh, creative practices. Um, and from there, it's they've developed their techniques and the artworks, the sculptures have, have become um, very different to, you know, the original um, purpose of the grass weavings was to make baskets and useful items. And now they make animals and um, even helicopters and cars and things like that. And so in selling those, it, it makes that community financially sustainable. So it's incredibly important for the, the people in that community. And likewise, um, Papalankacha artists and Warakurna artists provide an amazing support and a kind of network for people to use their, their own knowledge and cultural heritage to sustain themselves it's one of the the in terms of a model the these uh, aboriginal art centers in remote communities seem to serve such a vital role in not only yeah um, being a center where art is made and then selling the art ethically but right. being uh, 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 a, a way in which the money is then funneled directly back into the communities that they support yeah, that's right. I mean, that's um, and we're, we're really proud to be sort of assisting in that whole 
um, system, yeah, by holding the exhibition. Now, how did you get involved with the exhibition? Because people, judging from your accent, I'm sure a couple of people are going, <laughs> she sounds English. It does beg the question, <laughs> yes. Um, I've actually only been with Lyndon New Art for about eight weeks, so I came into this exhibition a little bit late in the piece. But um, So it's been actually an immense privilege for me to be in touch with these art centres. And in bringing the show together, I have been very mindful to... Um, you know, prioritise the artists' voices above everything else that I might like to say about the show. Um, so, the you know, through the wall text and the catalogue, um, it's really their voices that I'm trying to put forward. So I've been a facilitator more than anything, and really all the information that we've gathered from the art centres, I'm trying to, you know, present as directly and as faithfully as possible. Yeah. Uh, and in terms of the range of work, you've spoken about the mediums that people are, are making mm. work with and on, so mm. weaving, painting on, on canvas, painting on tin and so forth. What about the, the, the visual style and range of works that are being presented? Talk to us about what people can expect to see when they go along to the exhibition. Sure. Well, it's a really vibrant show and colour is really important in all the works. Um, really bright colours and they are colours um, that I've been told, you know, exist in the central desert. So the kind of the, the reds and the blue of the sky and that kind of thing. So it's it's very vibrant on that level. But um, an interesting thing too is that um, when people, I think when people think about uh, artwork coming out of the central desert region, they might think about maybe dot paintings, things like that. And there is some of that style uh, in the paintings, but a lot of the paintings are actually very kind of figurative. And that is a stylistic thing that's happened maybe over the last 20 years um, that artists there are using um, quite a direct style to depict events that have happened, historical events that have happened since um, colonialism has occurred. Um, and I'm told that that is um, to communicate um, the historical events to a broader audience, you know, in the most direct way possible. So, for example, the artworks that have come from Warakurna artists, they're about... Um, the contribution of that community in the 70s to cutting the roads through that area. So that was incredibly hard work, as you might imagine, literally sort of cutting back the shrubs and things like that with tractors and moving through and creating these roads. Um, and it was incredibly, um, you know, it's a really momentous thing to have happened in that area. It um, provides the artists with increased access to sacred sites and indeed other communities in the area too. Um, but that was unpaid work. Um, it was a government initiative at the time. And so, you know, there, there is a sort of ambivalence in the community as, as to how they feel about that. Um, and so it's interesting that the style of those artworks is in this way that the artists perhaps want to tell that story to maybe a non-Indigenous audience so that they understand what's happened in that area. Likewise, there are a series of works that are about the Maralinga bomb testing that happened um, in the 50s and the 60s. And those works are... Um, they sort of have this blending of the two styles. Um, so the, the artist actually was camping out and experienced the toxic dust clouds coming from those testing sites um, and she experienced the you know the ensuing sickness and the radiation poisoning that happened to the people um, 
and her works include sort of um, more traditional motifs of, of kind of camping, if you like, and then the actual bomb itself is depicted in a, in a very kind of more realistic, figurative style. So. I don't know, it makes them incredibly poignant to me. One of the things that I find really interesting about the works, as you've been telling us about them, I've jumped onto uh, the Linden website, mm-hmm. org, and you can, uh, there is a copy of the exhibition catalogue on the site, which so people uh, listening to our conversation can, can go and actually look at some of the works. But as you say, even though um, the some of the, the works are very much done not in a tradition, what people may think of as a mm. traditional style. Mm. There's still an absolute um, kind of linking to uh, that more traditional art style because th- these are still narrative paintings. They're just created right. using a visual narrative that is more broadly understandable to a to an Anglo-Australian audience, for example, as opposed to if I look at a dot painting, I'm not seeing kind of the landscape that each dot represents. A dot may be a waterhole or uh, it may be a reference to a song line and so forth. So looking at these paintings, I can, I can read them much more clearly. But, mm. yeah, there's still mm. that real sense of artwork as uh, a connection to culture, to country, uh, and telling a narrative history as well. That's right. Um, the Warakona paintings have been referred to as history paintings, yeah. that's I, You put it very well, yeah. Uh, and people can also, if you go to the website, you can look at the sculptures, the grass sculptures that are being made, and they're incredibly vibrant and playful, uh, and as you say, everything from kind of traditional basket weaving to emus and animals and, indeed, as you mentioned earlier, a, a fairly pink-coloured helicopter. <laughs> yes, that's right. And, in fact, the, the tail of the helicopter is actually made from a CD. So, you know, they incorporate found objects as well. There's a lot of humour in them too. Um, and the, it's amazing, actually, how the artists have captured the, the, the nature of the animals. So there are, um, I think, four lizards uh, that are called parentes, incredibly large lizards, I understand, um, kind of creeping towards visitors as they enter through the door. And they've, they've, the artists really captured that way that, you know, a lizard moves. And one of them actually has... Um, a cat coming out of its mouth, which is um, its a lunch. Cat, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so that, you know, there's a lot of humour. They're fantastic. If you've just tuned in, we're talking about the exhibition Borderlines with uh, curator Juliet Hansen from Linden New Art. Uh, and the exhibition is presented uh, in Domain House on Dallas Brooks Drive in South Yarra. Um, what's going on with the main Linden building at the moment in St Kilda? Yes, we're a little bit homeless at the moment. Uh, we're, um, it's actually been completely re- renovated. So uh, my understanding is that the roof is going to be coming off, um, but we're hoping to be back in there the second half of next year um, for a really exciting new program and with increased gallery space too, which will be fantastic. So it must be for you as a curator coming on board at this time, you've joined an organisation that is temporarily homeless. <laughs> yes. uh, that must be a bit of a challenge. Yeah. Um, so we have been thinking about new ways of, you know, continuing our exhibition programme whilst we don't have a gallery space of our own. And we have been uh, developing partnerships, in fact, with the National Trust and looking at how we can maybe put some contemporary art into their buildings and also because we're in their gardens we're right next to the shrine as well so running some public programs and talks um, with the shrine and yeah getting contemporary artists to speak about 
war topics as well. So great. So lots yeah, going lots on. Lots going. Yeah. Always. But the main focus of our conversation mm. today is, is the exhibition Borderlines, which is on now until the twenty fourth of September. You can find out more details, as I said, at www.lindenart.org. Juliet, how important is it for um, contemporary Indigenous art to be placed in a contemporary art? Um, kind of framework so rather than being seed, seen uh, as uh, a traditional art practice being kind of placed firmly in the mainstream alongside the work of other contemporary Australian artists? Oh well I, th- I think that Aboriginal art is a, a really vital and important part of the contemporary Australian art landscape. I mean, it's it just is a very natural part. It's you know, Linda knew out. We haven't questioned that that would be part of our program. It's um, I think it sort of reinvigorates everything that's going on. Yeah. And had you had much experience working with um, Aboriginal art prior to working on this exhibition? In fact, no, this is the first exhibition I've put together of Aboriginal art. I got thrown into the deep end a little bit, but as I said, it's been. Um, it's been an amazing experience and I've been really honoured to do so and it is a privilege, yeah. The exhibition, as we said, is called Borderlines on at Domain House uh, on Dallas Brooks Drive in South Yarra, just near the Shrine. Uh, it opened on the 11th of August. It runs through until the 24th of September, so you've still got quite a few weeks to get along and see it. More info, including details about opening hours at www.lindenarts.org. I've been talking with curator Juliet Hanson. Juliet, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.